You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 35, verses 1 to 29. So I'll be reading from the CSB version. Um, Please follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his family and all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in my day of distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. Then they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and their earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. When they set out, a terror from God came over the cities around them, and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So Jacob and all who were with him came to Luz, that is, Bethel, in the land of Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Deborah, the one who had nursed and raised Rebekah, died and was buried under the oak south of Bethel. So Jacob named it Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again after he returned from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You will no longer be called Jacob, named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed an assembly of nations will come from you, and kings will descend from you. I will give to you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, and I will give the land to your future descendants. Then... God withdrew from him at the place where he had spoken to him. Jacob set up a marker at the place where he had spoken to to him, a stone marker. He poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. They set out from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and her labor was difficult. During her difficult labor, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. With her last breath, for she was dying, she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a marker on her grave. It is a marker at Rachel's grave still today. Israel set out again and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard about it. 
Jacob had 12 sons. Leah's sons were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Rachel's sons were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's slave Bilhah were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's slave Zilpah were Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kiriath Abba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. He took his last breath and died and was carried to his people, old and full of days. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Uh, Gracious God, uh, we pray that as we come to the end of this year, uh, the end of this series in Genesis 26 to 36, uh, that you might be opening our eyes, that we might look back and we might say, wow, God has been with me every step of the way. And we might give you great thanks and praise for Jesus' sake. Amen. I, I don't know. Uh, I know people do it kind of differently. Some, some of you guys have already started saying Happy New Year for tomorrow. Uh, you're not allowed to do that yet. There's still about half a day left in it. Um, but it is important before we hit the new year to actually stop and reflect. Reflection is important. You know, the other week uh, I was sitting uh, with our pastoral assistant, Joseph Lim, and, and out of nowhere he just goes to me, what's something that you can thank God for over the last year? Well, wow. I wasn't expecting that. Um, He then proceeded to ask me a series of questions that prompted me to reflect on the year that's been. What's something that God has taught you? What's a character weakness that God has been at work in sanctifying? If you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? Uh, That's his uh, all-time favorite question. He's very good at asking questions that get to the heart. Other than that last one, friends, these are uh, deep questions. Reflection is important because, actually, if we don't reflect on life, we'll just go down the path of a mindless action. We'll be like cars spinning our tires with a handbrake up. A lot of energy, no real direction. So here's what I want to do. As we come to the end of this year and this series, I want us to pause, to take a breath, to reflect. And I want to use Jacob's reflection on his life as a way that we can reflect on our year both individually and as a church. So if you're a visitor here, join us for the ride. The last bit will be as a church, but throughout it, I'm going to be asking a number of questions that you can use to reflect on the year that's been. It'll be in many ways a a kind of a warm fireside chat as we open Genesis 35. And I've got five questions that I want us to reflect on. So if there's a week to take notes, write down questions, I'm going to give you a moment to do that uh, throughout this sermon. This is it. In Genesis 35, we've got five questions that confront us. Firstly, uh, how has God's faithfulness transformed you this year? How has God's faithfulness transformed you this year? In, in verse 1, God tells Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and settle there. But remember, this isn't the first time that God has told him to go home. Back in chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your ancestors and to your family, and I will be with you. But in chapter 33, that's not what he does. Jacob doesn't go all the way home. He goes to Succoth. He settles in Shechem, where a great sin is committed against Dina, his daughter. And now, 
After Jacob's continual struggle against God his whole life, God tells him yet again, it's time to go home. What will Jacob do now? Will he respond in fear as he always has? Or will he finally trust the God who's promised to protect him? In verses 2 to 4, Jacob responds in a way that we've never seen him respond before. In verse 3, he tells his whole family, we must get up and go to Bethel. Wow, this is a man who couldn't even lead himself last time, who would deceive everyone around him. And now here he is, he's not just obeying God himself, he's also leading his family in obedience to God like he's never done before. In verse 2, he tells his family, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Friends, there's a decisiveness to his words. No deceptions, no tricks, no secrets. And you think, wow, what a different Jacob from the man that we met 10 weeks ago. The heel-grabbing deceiver now bends the knee before his God. And he does so because in verse 3, it's as if he reflects on his life and almost wistfully says, I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. Isn't that beautiful? He has been with me everywhere I have gone. What a clear-eyed reflection on what, God, on what has been a very hard life. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, Jacob can look back on his life, a life of at times great suffering, and still say of God, He has been with me everywhere I have gone. You see, friends, Jacob has this deep sense of God's goodness. And when he reflects on how faithful God has been to him, he's radically transformed, isn't he? As he reflects on, wow, he has been with me everywhere I've gone, he cannot but destroy his idols. He cannot but commit himself to the Lord. So how has God's faithfulness transformed you this year? As you look back on 2023, with all of its highs and lows, can you say of God, He has been with me everywhere I've gone? And in response to God's faithfulness, are there idols that you've discarded? False gods that you've destroyed? Have you been putting to death an idolatry of marriage, friendship, or children? Have you gotten rid of the the good gift but false god of money, sex, and possessions? Have you sought to kill the wrongful worship of what other people think of you? How other people see you? Whether other people like you? In what way have you been transformed in response to the faithfulness of God this year? I'm going to give you a moment actually right now. I should write down an answer or reflect on that yourself. In what way have you been transformed by the faithfulness of God this year? Take a second to do that. Secondly, how has God protected your soul? How has God protected your soul? You see, in verses 5 to 8, Jacob and his family set out in obedience to God, but there are dangers all around. For Jacob to trust God and obey his call is not without risk. Now, the surrounding cities threaten to attack him. 
But verse 5 says, now, a terror from God came over the cities around them, and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So, so we read that phrase, a terror from God, and we think back to chapter 31, where Jacob calls God the fear of Isaac, the God who makes the nations tremble on account of his promise to Isaac. The God who makes the nations afraid on account of his promised protection of Jacob. God is a warrior who stands and fights for his people. In fact, Jacob's whole life can be described as one of divine protection, can't it? So in verse 6, Jacob and his family, they come to Bethel where they build an altar to the Lord because it's here at Bethel that God revealed himself to Jacob when he was fleeing his brother. It's when Jacob was at his most desperate and needy that God promised, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And that's exactly what God did. And now here is Jacob, many years later, going back to the place where it all began. Going back to the place where it started, where God first promised to protect his life. And in that place, he sets up an altar to remember, wow, God has protected me all these years. How has God protected you this year? Now, our first instinct might be to think of physical protection. God has protected me from sickness. God has protected me from harm. God has protected me from conflict and injury. Now, that's a wonderful blessing in itself, but I want to say that's not the protection that God is talking about in Genesis 35. You see, friends, the protection that God promises is not over our bodies, it's over our souls. In John 10, Jesus promises, My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, friends, but for the return of the Lord Jesus first, all of us will physically die. But God has promised to protect our souls. So how has God protected your soul this year? It's a strange question, but think about this. What sins has God kept you from committing? What temptations has he kept at bay and guarded you from? What dangerous places has he stopped you from going to? What unhelpful people as influences has he kept out of your life? Which godly people has he brought into your life to protect you from sin? These are the thousand different ways in which God protects our soul. So take a moment to reflect on that, maybe even write something down. How has God protected your soul this year? You see, friends, I suspect that some of the greatest moments of protection are unknown even to ourselves. Because there are paths of sin that I've never walked down and will never know about because God guided my footstep away from them in the first place before I ever knew it. And they're the ones that we really have to thank God for. Thirdly, how has God spiritually blessed you? How has God spiritually blessed you? Look at verses 9 to 15. God appears to Jacob and we read, he blessed him. Three words that that have a world of meaning, because even after a lifetime of lies, deceit, and envy, God's blessings do not change. But I want you to notice something about these blessings. There's actually nothing new about them at all. 
It's as if God looks back on Jacob's life and says, hey, the promises I made you all the way back at Bethel, they haven't changed one bit. I'm still keeping the same promises I made at the beginning, and I'm still keeping the same promises that I've always kept. I promised to bless you, Jacob, with a new life, and that's what I'm still doing. You'll no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. Your, your life has been one of constant striving against God. But now your life will be one where God wins every time. And he'll win by showing you the grace you don't deserve. Your life will be marked by God's sovereign grace. I promise to bless you with a new life. And I also promise to bless you with a future. Do you see, friends, I wonder if you've noticed, throughout Genesis, God's purpose has, to, has been to bring life out of death. It's why he said all the way back in chapter 1 to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth life. But sin brought death into our world. Lifelessness, infertility, childlessness throughout Genesis challenged God's purposes. But God says to Jacob, I promise to bless you with a future. A future filled with life. And you won't just have kids of your own, gosh, a whole nation. Indeed, an assembly of nations will come from you and kings will descend from you. And that includes the one king who will crush the head of the serpent, who will reverse the effects of the curse, who will bring about a world without death, a world full of life. Jacob looks back and he sees not only how he's been transformed by God's faithfulness, he doesn't just see how God has protected his soul. No, he looks back on his life and sees all the ways in which God has blessed him over and over and over again, especially when he didn't deserve it. So how has God blessed you this year? Again, our first impulse is to think about all the material blessings that God has given us. A first home. A new friend marriage, a dating relationship, a child, a holiday in Japan. It was great. It was very, very good. <laughs> now, these are the good gifts of a generous father. Enjoy them. Thank him for them. But they are what we might call his uncovenanted blessings, blessings that he never included within his covenant, blessings that he never promised and yet freely gives all the same. No, friends, the blessings of his covenant, the blessings that he promised, are what we find here in Genesis 35, the blessing of a new life and the blessing of a future. Brothers and sisters, for us, these are the blessings of Ephesians 1. Election, holiness, blamelessness, predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, an inheritance, a hope, the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we have the spiritual blessings of our salvation. And can I tell you, often the, the most tragic impulse in us is to value the uncovenanted blessings of this world over the spiritual blessings of our God. Nothing excites us very much about our salvation, but we get so excited about a holiday at the sea. I want to say, friends, these spiritual blessings are far greater than any holiday in Japan, any tickets to Taylor Swift, any first home in a nice suburb, any spouse, any child, or any friend. Those blessings, however wonderful, pale in comparison to these. These blessings, these spiritual blessings, have been won through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's why in Ephesians 1, we keep reading that phrase, 
in him, in him, in him. Because it's in Christ that God gives us every blessing we will ever need. So don't ask, how has God blessed me this year? And focus on all the fleeting, material, uncovenanted blessings, good though they are. Don't find more joy in them than the covenanted blessings of the gospel. Ask yourself, friends, how has God spiritually blessed you this year? Maybe, best of all, you became a Christian. And if that's you, can I say there's no greater spiritual blessing than that? A new life in Jesus. Maybe, though, it's the assurance of forgiveness. As a Christian, this year you look back and you say, wow, I actually have that clean conscience that now can say, yes, I've been forgiven for that sin for which I could not even forgive myself. Maybe it's the peace of being freed from the grip of a sin that has haunted you for years. Gossip, pornography, addiction or vanity. Or maybe it's the wonderful blessing of God's church. Look at you. The church which has shown you and helped you experience something of God's love, forgiveness and presence. I mean, after all, in verse 11, when God says to Jacob, a nation, indeed, an assembly of nations will come from you, that word assembly, kahal, means church, gathering, a gathering of people from every nation under the lordship of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this right here, you are one of God's great spiritual blessings to one another and one of God's great spiritual blessings to me. So take a moment now. Write down your answer. Think about it. Reflect it. How has God spiritually blessed you this year? Fourthly. Fourthly. How has your sin marred God's grace? How has your sin marred God's grace? Friends, can I tell you, here's the tragedy of this passage. Here's the tragedy of Genesis. Here's the tragedy of our lives. Every time God shows his grace, every time God proves his faithfulness, every time God extends his love, we stuff it up. We mar God's grace with our sin. Just think about Genesis 9. God makes a covenant with Noah to never again judge the earth with a flood. And what does Noah do? He gets plastered and naked. And we see the same sort of pattern here with Jacob. Verses 16 to 26, God blesses Jacob with 12 sons. But in verse 22, we read, While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Awful. Every time we think it's going to be a good ending, we come along and stuff it up. No sooner does God bless an undeserving people that Reuben then sleeps with his stepmother. That's kind of weird. And you might wonder why. It's not immediately apparent why, but it seems that Reuben is actually trying to seize control of his family. If you jump forward to 2 Samuel 3, we find Abner, one of the sons of Saul. He sleeps with his father's concubine as a way to acquire power within the household. There's that there's, there's, there's that habit throughout the Old Testament of this happening. And if that's what's going on here, it actually makes sense of everything we've read in Genesis, doesn't it? Verse 3 tells us that Reuben is Jacob's firstborn. The author goes out of his way to say he's the firstborn. And that means if he is, one day Reuben will inherit the blessings of his father. 
But just like his father, Reuben cannot trust God enough to do God's will in God's way. We've seen it before and we're seeing it again. So Reuben, just like his father, seizes the throne. How tragic. After 10 chapters of God's faithfulness, his people still cannot trust him. And how much more tragic that in verse 22, Israel heard about it. And from what we can tell, he does absolutely nothing. Just like he was silent when Dina was defiled, Jacob again is passive in the face of great evil. The story of Genesis is one in which over and over and over again, our sin mars God's grace. In fact, Genesis 36 is there to show us just how Esau's family becomes Edom, a nation that will constantly be at war with Israel. And look at how it all starts in verse 2. It's because Israel took his wives from the Canaanite women. He married outside God's people. And the result is a history of constant conflict, constant war, constant sin. It doesn't give me joy to raise it, but I don't know how many times it's come up in Genesis. Don't marry outside God's people. It's just not worth it. Why is it that our sin always seems to mar God's grace? Why is it that even after we've been transformed by His faithfulness, even after we've been protected by His promise, even after we've been blessed by His Son, our sin still wages war against our souls? It's an uncomfortable question, and I'm not asking you to share it with your neighbor. But reflect on this in your heart. How has your sin marred God's grace this year? What are those idols you have held on to? Those false loves you have fed? Those besetting sins that threaten to slowly eat away at your love for the Lord, but you've turned a blind eye to it? You said it's, it's not that bad. Friends, we stand in a better position than Jacob because on this side of the cross, Jesus has dealt with our sins once and for all. Jesus died to pay the penalty of our every sin, including the sins that we keep on committing. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, know this. Jesus has provided a way for you to be forgiven of every sinful thought, every sinful word, and every sinful deed. And for us Christians, he provides a way for us who have been forgiven before to be forgiven again and again. And again, and again. 1 John 1, 9 assures us, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'm asking you now to take a moment to write that down and reflect on it, but with the assurance of forgiveness, with the confidence that God will forgive you, how has your sin marred God's grace this year. Take a moment to do that. You can jot some dot points down and come back to it this afternoon. Finally, friends, finally, how have tragedy and death afflicted you? How have tragedy and death afflicted you? You know what? Even though this passage celebrates the birth of Jacob's sons, there's just so much death. In verse 8, there's the death of Deborah, the one who had nursed and raised Rebekah. 
In verses 16 to 19, there's the death of Rachel, who gives birth to a child, but she names him Ben-Oni, which means son of my grieving. But Jacob comes along and changes his name to Ben-Yamin or Benjamin, which means son of good fortune. But isn't, isn't that the dichotomy that describes our life? On the one hand, we have the blessings of God, in which, is our, which is our good fortune, and yet at the same time, we still grieve tragedy and death every day. And in verses 28 to 29, Isaac lived 180 years. He took his last breath and died. Do you see, friends, the inevitable problem right throughout Genesis is this. In a world that God created to be full of life, people keep dying. It's why God's promise is all about children. Because it's all about God bringing life out of death. But Psalm 90 says that still, even on this side of the cross, our world remains under a curse. Even though Jesus has come and done away with death, we still live in a world full of it. Even though Jacob is blessed with life through his sons, tragedy and death still befall him. And it's a painful question to ask, but we cannot get to the end of this year without asking it. How have tragedy and death afflicted you this year? It might not be death, but we live with the brokenness of our world every day. Have you suffered from sickness, depression, and anxiety? Have you had friendships break down and relationships break up? Or maybe you have lost people you love to death. Friends, our world remains under a curse. Tragedy and death still befall us, but just like our sin, death does not have the final word. Tragedy does not have the final word. You see, while Jacob's story is marred by sin and death, our story has the hope of forgiveness and life. For in the death of Jesus, sin has been atoned for. And in the resurrection of Jesus, death has lost its sting. So even in the greatest tragedies of life, from breakdown to breakup, disease to death, none of it is forever. We can grieve our losses. Brothers and sisters, can I say we should grieve our losses? But we can grieve with hope. The certain hope of a new life where death, crying and pain will be no more. So I'm going to ask you in your hearts right now, maybe jot it down or bring it before the Lord, grieve it to Him with the hope of the resurrection. How have tragedy and death afflicted you this year? Bring them before the Lord. Grieve them in hope. Take a moment to do that. Friends, As we reflect on Jacob's life, I think we could sum it up in those wistful, beautiful words of verse 3, where Jacob says, he has been with me everywhere I have gone. And isn't that where it all starts? Recognizing God's faithfulness in our lives, including in those times where he felt so distant. Even then, even in the deepest, darkest valleys when Jacob and I would have felt so alone, when God felt so silent, we can still say, no. He was with me everywhere I have gone. As you look back on this year, can you say that? Through all the highs and lows, all the tragedies, all the joys, can you say, God has been with me? 
Friends, I wanted to end today and this year briefly by reflecting on these five questions, not just for you guys individually. You've done that. Can I encourage you to do that for the rest of today as well? Before you step into the new year, take some time today to do that. But I want to end briefly by reflecting on these five questions for our life together as a church. So if you call Cross and Crown home, listen up, especially now, because this is how we can love one another. If you're a guest, enjoy the show. As your pastor, I want to offer some of my reflections for how God has been with us throughout this year. And I'm going to try to be pretty honest. Okay, firstly, how has God's faithfulness transformed us as a church this year? Here's my best guess. Among many things, here's just one. I think that God this year has taught our church family how to love one another better and more deeply through pain, through sin, through conflict, and through hurt. That's a good thing. I think he's taught us more how to commit to repentance, how to pursue reconciliation, how to long for restoration, but also being realistic about the slowness of hurt and relational pain. When I think about how God's faithfulness has transformed us, when I think about the idols that we have put to death in response to his faithfulness, I praise God, brothers and sisters, for the transforming work that he's done in our church by teaching us to more and more forgive one another as God has forgiven us in Jesus. You might have other ones. Share them with each other after church over lunch. Celebrate those good things, the ways in which God has been at work in faithfully transforming us as a church. Secondly, how has God protected our church? How has God protected our church? We must never take this for granted. It's said that the church is only ever one generation away from destruction. And you've been in local church life for any long time, you know that any church is just one problem away from disintegration. For some people, the start of this year was a bit rough. There were moderate levels of drama in different parts of our church family. Let's, let's be honest about it. That's okay. Conflict is never fun. But it's also never surprising, is it? So as a church family, we need to be honest about these things, repentant of what we need to repent of, and to recommit ourselves to loving one another in light of the gospel of grace. But can I say, I really thank God for preserving the unity of our church, protecting us from deep division. You should never take that for granted. So many churches are torn apart by division and sin, and God has been merciful in protecting us for yet another year. So we come to him and praise him and thank him for that. Don't take it for granted. There might be other ways, as I said, in which God has protected us that I'm not aware of that you would know. Share it with one another. That's a good thing to give thanks to God for. Thirdly, how has God spiritually blessed our church? Now, this is the one that excites me, right? Because this is the stuff we need to be focusing on. We could focus on all sorts of other things, right? It's, we, we could easily talk about the uncovenanted blessings, We've had so many marriages, wonderful, kids born in, really good. Ten marriages next year, even more to look forward to, right? That's great. The uncovenanted blessings of a bouldering group, a futsal team, a gaming league. They're good things, don't get me wrong. I'm part of none of them and I have no desire to be, so don't add me. Um, here's something better. Three conversions, eight baptisms and confirmations. 28 new members, now five kids in counting. I am, on current projections, uh, we are expecting, not expecting that you must, as in like expecting that that's what's probably coming, uh, eight children next year, which probably means we'll get to 10, right? 
It's exciting. More people in our BLT network going deeper in the word together more than ever. What a blessing. These are the things that should animate us. These are the things that should excite us. These are the things, to be honest, why we're together. We are not together to go bouldering, but do it without me. We are not together to to, 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 to go for a futsal team or a gaming league. Do it without me. We're together for God's word. We're together for new life. We're together for these spiritual blessings that God gives us. These are the things we must celebrate. And these are the things we must give, give great thanks to God for. Praise God for new life in Jesus. Praise God for a deeper love for the Lord. I thank God for all of you that he has used this year, this assembly of nations to win more people to himself and to grow more people in their love for him. I praise God for each one of you. But fourthly and uncomfortably, we have to ask the questions, how have the sins of our church marred God's grace? Now, can I say, generally speaking, churches are not very good at this, right? We're not very good at identifying, let alone confessing, sins that are in the culture of a church. I'm not talking about, I'm not saying that these sins are ones that every single person here struggles with. That would be an overstatement. But there are sins that every church in some way struggles with because it becomes the air that we breathe. So I'm going to wade through a land field of landmines right now because... Hey, if we're doing the task, we might as well go the whole way. I want to gently offer, gently offer, could be wrong, three sins that I suspect might be in the air that we breathe as a church. Could be wrong, so I'm careful to say this, but if we're seriously to reflect on our life together, we can't dodge it, can we? So, with that very big caveat, I want to suggest that there are three besetting sins That over time, as a church, we need to both gently and aggressively put to death. We can hold those two things together. Firstly, an idolatry of money. The standard of living that many of us aspire to or assume is normal does sometimes worry me. This is about me as well, right? And in Australia, greed is the sin that most of us are blind to And most of us excuse and justify in a thousand different ways. Still okay? Legs still attached. All good. Secondly, an idolatry of community. Here's an interesting one. I was thinking about this. I suspect one of our besetting sins as a church is that we love gathering together as a church to hang out with each other more than to worship the Lord. I think when we come on Sundays, we're excited to see each other, but I don't know how excited we are to see the Lord. And if that's true, if it's a comfortable sin that will over time transform a church into a club without us realizing. Can I offer? Idolatry of money, idolatry of community. Thirdly, here's the the fun one, an idolatry of leisure. So many of us love to travel. I suspect that collectively, our church has just powered the Japanese economy, uh, including me, including me. So, well, you know, okay. I'm a little concerned that our pursuit of fun, adventure, and holidays will end up suffocating and killing our love for the Lord. So that's, put my hand up, right? Me as well, I'll own that. But I, I think I wouldn't be doing my job as dad unless I said, 
I think we need to think about these things, yeah? It's what I think. I could be wrong. I suspect I'm not. Because the idolatries of money, community, and leisure are actually just the sins of our culture. So it's kind of no surprise, is it? And we must commit ourselves to gently and aggressively, we can do both, putting these sins to death as we look to the new year. Sit with that for a moment, actually. There's a moment there. Sit with that. (laughs) Idolatry of money, community, and leisure. Think about that. You could say you're wrong, ridiculous, or maybe. You send me an email. Uh, Finally, how have tragedy and death afflicted our church? How tragedy and death afflicted our church? I know that some of us this year uh, fallen out with friends or just grown distant. Relationships are hard, aren't they? Some of us a result of sin. Some of us just life. It's hard, isn't it? Sometimes it's not our problem. We see our friends going through suffering and that really pains us. And we feel the burden of care for them and that, that burdens us. Even more painfully, some of us in our church family have lost loved ones to death this year. And we still feel the grief in our hearts, don't we? Can I say, brothers and sisters, please don't grieve alone. Let's grieve together. Let's grieve these tragedies and mourn these deaths together. Let's bring our sorrows before the Lord together. Let's hold on to the hope of the resurrection together. So there, five questions for you. How has God's faithfulness transformed you this year? How has God protected your soul this year? How has God spiritually blessed you this year? How has your sin marred God's grace this year? How have tragedy and death afflicted you this year? Brothers and sisters, there's, only, there's hours left in the year. And as we look back and you take the afternoon to finish this task yourselves in your own time and share it with each other, can I say, well may we say together, he has been with us everywhere we have gone. That's the greatest thing to say, isn't it? Let me pray. Uh, God, as we reflect uh, on your word and reflect on our life together, give us the humility to bring before you uh, the pains and sorrows, the sins and transgressions that burden us. But may we never be remiss in giving you great thanks and praise. May we never neglect the obligation and right duty that we have to thank you and praise you for every spiritual blessing that you've given to us, for all the ways in which you've protected us, for all the ways in which you've guarded us. God, we're so sorry for the year. We look at Jacob's life and see his life is marked by a struggle against you and eventually submission to your sovereign grace. And we know how often we struggle against you, how much we fight against you, how much we resist you, how much we don't trust you, how much we want to take things into our own hands. That might be our year or might have been our year. But God, as we look to you, we know that you are our rock of ages, the only one that we can truly trust and hold on to. And so whether we look back on our year or one day on that last day when we take our final breath and look back on our lives, we pray that we might be able to say, yes, our life has been marred by so much sin. But even more than that, we might be able to say, God, you are with me everywhere I have gone. For Jesus' sake, amen.